Now we're going to continue on with uh, verse 28 actually. And so as we've been looking at the book of Romans, um, we get here to kind of the, 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 we're like halfway through the book of Romans and we see that, that Paul, you know, he's, he's mentioned to us in the previous chapters and, and everything leading up to this chapter. Right. Keep in mind that, that back in the day when, when the book of Romans was written, it wasn't divided in chapter, didn't have these chapter divisions. It was one continuous thought. Right. And so as Paul is writing and he, as he gets to this part now in the book of Romans, he's mentioned to us how there is no condemnation to the believers. He says, hey, there's no condemnation to the believer. You know, as we are sons and daughters of God, uh, he says, having received adoption. Right? He says, now we're able to cry out, Abba, Father, meaning we have that, that intimate relationship with God now. Because of Jesus Christ, because of what He did on the cross, He said he likens the, the, the relationship of the believer to God as that of a personal, intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. Right? And He's mentioned how, how there's this, this ongoing witness of the Holy Spirit now indwelling us, the Holy Spirit of God. You know, with, and He says that with our spirit, it bears witness that we are the children of God and we're heirs with Jesus Christ, meaning all those things that, 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 that belong to Christ, I mean, they belong to us. His righteousness, His grace, right, His mercy, all these different things. And then he mentions that despite all this, you know, there are sufferings that the believer goes through, right, as he presses forward to be glorified together with Christ. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning as we finish uh, chapter 8 of the book of Romans. And so we see that as believers, you know, we're not exempt from suffering. Meaning, hey, just because we're Christians, just because we've been born again, just because we gave our lives to the Lord, doesn't mean like, all right, cool, now you're exempt from suffering. Uh, you're not going to go through anything in this life. You're not going to you know, experience any hardships. I mean, if anything, it almost seems like when you give your life to the Lord, it's like, man, everything just comes all at once. Right? And then a lot of people, man, they give their life to the Lord and they start feeling that pressure of the world of all these trials. And they begin to think, man, if I was better off not being a Christian. Right? And they kind of turn away from the Lord, not realizing that you're going to go through those things no matter what, whether you're a Christian or not. But the difference is that, man, as believers, we have certain promises through these trials, and that's what we're going to go through uh, here in this chapter. Right? And so, uh, even Jesus said, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's a promise. Right? You buy those little uh, pocket uh, promises of the, of the Bible books. Uh, you go to the bookstore, they have these little booklets that say, like, 100 promises from the Bible for you. You're never going to find this one promise in the Bible. That in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Right? That's one of the promises that, man, we don't want to take up for ourselves. But it's something that God promises in His Word that we are going to have tribulation. But He says, hey, but be of good cheer. He says, hey, don't worry. Right? Why? Because I have overcome the world, says the Lord. And so beginning there in verse 28 of the book of Romans, chapter 8, He begins by saying, And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And we'll stop right there. And so we see that in the midst of trials, hey, God is at work. And that, that's what Paul's going to talk about now in these, in these few verses. That in the midst of our trials as believers, God is at work. And so we see that the, the spiritual truth that it is possible to be at the very center of a perfect will of God for you in your life. And yet, be suffering. It's possible to be in the perfect will of God and yet still be suffering. Right? And I say that because if you turn on the television and watch a lot of uh, you know, the most common preachers, what we know as like prosperity teachers, 
They'll preach and they'll teach you that, hey man, as a Christian, you're not supposed to be going through any trials. As a Christian, you're not going to get sick. As a Christian, you should be, you know, prospering, thriving, rich, all these other things. And we see that, that the Bible just simply doesn't teach that. Right? But the Bible does tell us that it is possible to be in the perfect will of God and yet still be suffering. But this is the promise that we have as believers. Right? Paul says, hey, we know. So he says, we know. That's like the most absolute fact. He says, hey, look, we know this. That in the midst of our suffering, we know. Meaning that this is a fact as real as oxygen, as real as the sky is blue, as real as anything else that you know that is real. He says, we know this. And this is real. Right? That there's absolutely no doubt you know, about what Paul's going to share. We know. We know what? We know that all things work together for good. Meaning that our suffering as believers, our trials, uh, our mistakes, and even our victories... It, the, the things that, that we can't explain or, or that we can't see an end to, Paul says, hey, all these things, right, work together for good. Meaning that God is working all these things together for good in our lives, whether we can see the end of it or not. I was talking to somebody yesterday and they're just sharing with me, you know, something that their son's going through and that they're going through. And, and she's like, gosh, like, I just, I don't see an end to this. Right? And she broke down. She's like, man, I just, she's like, I just can't see past tomorrow. I can't see when this is ever going to end. And a reminder, hey, God's not done yet, right? We're, we tend to get discouraged when we look at our stories like as we're in right now. We look at the present and we don't see the end knowing that, hey, God exists outside of time, right? He exists in one eternal presence and he sees the beginning and the end as if they were one, right? We have to, in our, in our, in our finite uh, existence, go through this day by day, moment by moment, trusting God by faith that, God, you're going to work it out. But Paul says, look, we know that this is a fact, that God is working all things together for our good. Right? He's working all things together for our good. And so we can be sure that God is at work in the world and that God has a perfect plan. And that God's plan uh, involves two purposes. One, our good. And two, His glory. Right? And that's something that, that is distinct to the plans of God. It's always for our good and it's always going to be for His glory. No matter what it is, whatever you're going through, if it's something hard, if it's something good, or whatever it is, keep your, remind yourself of this, that, that God's purpose in this is that one, for your good, and two, for His glory. For your good, for His glory. For your good, for His glory. But notice who this applies to. He says, we know that all things work together for good, and this is who it applies to, to those who love God, and to those who uh, are called according to His purpose. Right. So to those who love God and those who who He has called, right, to a specific purpose. Meaning, if you've given your life to the Lord, that's you. That pertains, that, that promise, you can take it up for yourself. And mean, all right, this is mine, right? This, belong, this belongs to me. Now, in the contrast to the non-believer, right, to the person who has rejected Christ, to the person that wants nothing to do with God, to that person who has rejected uh, uh, Christ as ruling over their life as Lord and Savior, uh, and the person who rejects Christ has no hope in the midst of their suffering. Right? They have no hope. They, have, they see no end to this. Why? Because that means that God is not at work in their life. Though God allows all these things to happen, there's no divine end to that suffering. It's just things that happen to them. Right? You're looking at it through an eternal perspective, of course. But us, if we've yielded our life to God, then we can be 100% sure of this fact that He's at work even when we can't see it. Right? And this is something that man, we have to, as believers, constantly be reminded of. Because if we let ourselves be guided by our emotions, by what we see, by the temporal, we're going to be like this. 
that crazy roller coaster and not man you're up you're down you're up you're down why because we're guided by what we see we're guided by those momentary things that happen in our lives right and those things are unsure but what is sure in our life is what the word of God and who he is he never changes Jesus says hey heaven and earth will pass away but my word will by no means ever pass away right? the Bible says the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our Lord endures forever and so in a world that's just so unsure, in a world that's just so changing, in a world that's just, man, at every single constant moment seems like it's, you know, changing, we can trust in God's word that remains the same. Amen? And he says this in verse 29, he says, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, Talking about the believer, he says, These he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. And so, when did this calling begin? Right? When did this calling begin? Was it when you decided to follow Jesus? Right? Did God begin to work all these things together for your good when you started, when you, when you began to follow Jesus? Did God begin to work all these things together for good when you said, oh, You know what? I'm, I'm repenting. I'm giving my life to the Lord. No, did, did God come up with that plan right there and then? All right, oh, this guy became a Christian. Now I got to figure out a game plan for the rest of his life. No, that's not God. But notice what Paul says. He says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Meaning that God's calling and plan for you began before the world even came into existence. Before you were ever even born. Amen. God called you. Before you were ever even born. Amen. God orchestrated a plan for your life. This is what he told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5. As he called Jeremiah, he was just a, a, a young kid, a teenager, right? And he's calling Jeremiah to go prophesy to a nation that's like super rebellious against God. And he tells him this in Jeremiah 1.5. He says, before I formed you in the womb, he says, hey, I knew you, Jeremiah. He says, before you were even born, I sanctified you, meaning I set you apart for my purposes. He says, I ordained you a prophet to the nation, meaning I gave you a purpose in this life. Before, I even, before you were even formed in the womb. Right? And that's something that, that applies to all of us. Different callings, different purposes, but God's same foreknowledge of us. Right? It's not that we existed before we were born, but God had us already in mind. God had already a plan for us, for our lives. Right? He had a purpose for our lives. And you could be sure that, that, that the suffering that you're going through or that you may experience or that you have experienced the things that you don't have an answer to, you can be sure that that's part of God's purposes for your life. And so Paul is telling those at Rome, and he's telling us as well. He says, hey, God wouldn't call you to just abandon you in your time of suffering. He says, you're suffering, you're going through all these things right now. But he said, look, God called you from before you were even born. Right? And he's saying, man, God wouldn't call you from before you were ever born. He wouldn't go through all that trouble to call you to make a plan for your life before you were ever born to abandon you while you're going through all this suffering. That's what he's saying. He says, if he, had a, he had a plan for you all along. And then Paul described this amazing Amazing, this uh, five-link chain of, 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 of God's calling for the believer. Right? He says, as he describes this five-link five -link chain of, of, of God's calling, he says, hey, look, God foreknew you, and whom he foreknew you, he predestined, and whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. Boom, boom, boom. These like, things just like uh, leapfrogging off one another. Right? These things that, that pertain to the believer, that belong to the believer. To those who have, who have given their life to the Lord, right? 
And so we see that God works out all things in our life for the good with the intention that those things would cause us to look more like His Son, Jesus. He says, look, I called you. He said, first I foreknew you. I knew you before you were born. And then I predestined you that you would come to me. He says, and then also I called you with a purpose. And after I called you, He says, hey, I justified you. Meaning we went through, a whole, through the whole justification process in these chapters. Meaning that God calls you and through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, he makes it so that as if you never had sinned. And so when God looks at you now as a believer, as a born-again Christian in, in the Lord, hey man, He doesn't look at your mistakes. He doesn't look at your, you know, at your faults. He doesn't look at your shortcomings. He sees you as if you had never scratched the surface, as you, as you had never sinned. That's the beauty of justification, right? Break it down. Just as if I've never sinned. That's what that word means. Says, and after He justified you, He says, hey, He glorified you together with His Son. And so... Again, Paul says that God called us with the end purpose that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. It doesn't mean that He's trying to make us look like Jesus physically, but He's trying to make us look like Jesus personally. Right? That's God's intent for the suffering that we go through, for all the different trials that we go through. God is trying to conform us more to the image of His Son. Right? Jesus was humble. And we can't learn humility unless we hit rock bottom. Right? Jesus uh, was compassionate. He was merciful. And we can't show that same compassion and that same mercy unto others unless we've suffered. Right? Jesus was forgiving. And we can't learn that forgiveness of Christ unless, man, one, we've experienced that forgiveness and also we've forgiven others as well. Paul would say this later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 5. He would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, The Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, notice, so that we also may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He says, For as the suffering of Christ abounds in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And what he's saying is, Amen. Praise God. He says, Praise God who comforts us when we're going through these heavy trials. So that we could experience that comforting and as a byproduct, we could comfort someone else with that same comfort that we've received. Right? Everything that we go through has a purpose. God has a purpose in it. Right? And a lot of times it's so that He can use you in the life of someone else. First, to minister to you in your personal life, but also as you can minister to someone else who's going through the same thing. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? He says, If God is for us, then who can be against us? And he says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, for us all. He says, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So he says, man, what can we say about these wonderful truths? Right? What can we say to these things? It's like a rhetorical question. What can we say to these things? Right? What can we say about this? He's saying, God thought about me, he said. God thought about me before I was ever born. He predestined me that I would be his son or his daughter, right? He placed a calling in my life, and through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he made it so that it would be as I've never sinned. He forgave me. Then he glorified me together with his son. And Paul says, man, what can we say about this? He's got no words. And just as I think about this, man, there's nothing we can say. I can say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you like a thousand times, and it's still not enough. But there's no words to describe what God has done for us. And so Paul says, man, what can we say about this, right? 
Because there are no words. There's no words to describe the gratitude here that Paul is experiencing and that, and that we should be experiencing as we realize all that God has done for us. Right? And so after Paul described these great, like the, the great lengths that God went, went to to save a sinful humanity, to save us, he says, man, God, sure, surely God is for us. Right? If God is for us, who could be against us? Right? What can we say about this, man, that God is for us? And so as we look at God's goodness, as we look at what God has done in our lives, as we look at the lengths that God went through to save us, you could come to one conclusion, and God is for me. If God did all that to save me, man, He must be on my side, right? God is for me. God is for me, right? Now I say that because there's many people out there living their lives thinking that, thinking and believing that, man, God's out to get them. Like, all right, I'm a Christian now, but man, I did all these things and I'm just waiting for the moment. I know God's going to repay me for what I did. And, and they live their Christian walks like, like if they're walking on eggshells, just waiting. All right, it's going to come at any time. It's going to come at any time. Right? And it's natural in our flesh to think that way because that's how us as believers, I mean, as, us as humans sort of think. Right? And in human terms, yeah, I mean, you do someone wrong and you're waiting for them to get you back. But not with God. That's not God, man. God doesn't hold any grudges. I love this verse in Lamentations. Lamentations 3.23 says, uh, man, that God's mercies are new every morning. Just therefore we'll praise Him. Right? Because His mercies are new for us every single morning. God's not out to get us. Right? Contrary to how a lot of people live. And I, again, I've met believers that, like, that live this way that they can never fully enter into that rest of God, into that rest that, 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 that Jesus has offered to them. Because they're always walking thinking that, all right, at any moment God's going to get me. Even though he's already forgiven you, even though he's already justified you, even though he's already called you a son, a daughter, even though he's already promised you eternal life, given everything that pertains to life and godliness, Peter would say, and yet you think God's going to get you? No, God loves you. God loves you. Jesus would say in John chapter 3, he would say, hey, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through me might be saved. Right? That's what he said. And so, as Paul is just, again, just, just, uh, rolling out this thought right he says hey the reality is that for those who are in Christ God is for us if you're a Christian if you're a believer if you're giving your life to the Lord hey God is for you God is on your side God is for you and if God is for you Paul says hey, who can be against us right who can be against us and so even our, in our suffering God is for us and, he, and if God is for us he says who can be against us and you may think I have a lot coming against me I got my job coming against me. I got the world coming against me. I got the enemy coming against me. I feel like the pressures of this world are against me. What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean who could be against me? I have all these things against me, I feel like. Right? I have a lot coming against me. And even Jesus would say in John 15, 18, He says, hey, if the world hates you, then know that it has hated me before it hated you. I mean, hey, even the world's coming against you. Jesus would say, Paul would say this in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. And so Jesus would say, Hey, the world is against you. It hates you because it hated me. Then Paul would say later on in Ephesians, he would say, Hey man, all the demonic spiritual forces, they're all against you. You have a target on your back. But yet here he says, Man, who could be against us? What does he mean? Right. And so... There are many who are going to come against us. There are many who are going to come against us. I mean, Satan himself has made himself your enemy because you sided with the Lord. Jesus would say, hey man, there is no dividing line. He says, he who is not for us is against us. 
There is no gray areas. There is no, all right, well, I'm just in between. There is no riding the fence with the Lord. Jesus said, hey, if you're not for us, you're against us. And so if you're for us, uh, by default, you're against Satan and he's against you. And so there are many who are going to come against us, right? But the difference is that though they come against us, the world and those demonic forces will never overcome the believer. That's the difference. Man, as a non-believer, you have no protection. There's no hedge of protection around you. The world's coming against you. Satan's coming against you. Everything's coming against you full force. And you're just pop, pop, pop. Taking the hits left, right, uppercut, paymaker, all these things. You're getting hit left and right and you have no defense. Your defenses are down. But as a believer, those, though the world may come against you, though Satan himself and his demonic forces come against you, hey, they will not overcome you. The prophet Isaiah would say this in Isaiah 54, 17. He would say, well, God speaking to the prophet Isaiah, he would say, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Notice that, no weapon, spiritual, physical, whatever it may be, no weapon formed against you will prosper. And he says, and every tongue which rises up against you in judgment, he says, you shall condemn. Tongues come up, right? People come up to condemn you in judgment, to condemn you. And God says, hey, when they rise up, he says, you're going to condemn them. And he says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Notice that. This isn't just for the nation of Israel. He says, this is the heritage. Meaning this is, man, this belongs to you. It's like the blood that runs through your veins. He says, this is your heritage. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. He says, and their righteousness, it's from me, says the Lord. And then Paul would say, again, back there in, uh, in verse 31, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? In 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Meaning, hey man, if the father didn't, didn't hold back his greatest gift, his son. If God the father didn't hold back the most prized possession of heaven, his son, Jesus Christ. then what makes you think that he's going to hold back any other good thing from you? If he already gave you the greatest thing, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the prize of heaven, the most prized possession of heaven. If he already gave you that, why would he give you anything less than that? Right? Any other good thing that, got, that comes from the Lord is less than Jesus. It's less than that perfect gift of Christ. Right? That's the greatest gift. Anything that comes after that doesn't even compare. It's less than the greatest gift that God already gave, which is his Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul would say, hey man, if the father didn't hold back the greatest gift, his son, then you think that he's going to hold back any good thing from you when he already gave you his best? And the answer, of course, is no. Is no. Right? And again, in the context of suffering, that's what Paul's talking about now to the believer. He said, look man, we're going to suffer. We're going to go through all these things. But look, God has a purpose in your suffering. Right? He causes all things to work together for good in the midst of your suffering. Why? Because he foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He glorified you. He went through all this trouble to save you. And yet he's not going to abandon you in your suffering. He has a purpose through this suffering. And he, he already gave you the best gift that he could give his son, his love, his mercy. Then why would he give you anything else that's good for you? Verse 33, notice he says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? He says, it's God who justifies. He says, who, who is he who condemns? He says, it's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us? 
shall distress separate us? What about persecution? Will famine separate us from the love of Christ? He says, what about nakedness? What about peril? What about sword? He says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul is quoting there, you know, in Psalms. And so we see that the believer's security is in the love of God. We are secure in the love of God. Right? For the Christian, for the believer, there is no safer place than the love of God. Right? As believers, our desire should be to remain and abide in the love of God because that's where we're safe. That's where we're safe. Again, who's going to bring a charge against us? He says, it's God who justifies us. Right? And then he says, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And so, there is no safer place for the believer than the love of God. Sometimes as believers, we think, all right, man, well, cool, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, you know, I'm justified, God forgave me, God loves me. Uh, thank you, Lord, now I'll go out there and do the rest, or I'll go out there and find my way, or I'll go out there and make it happen on my own. God says, man, you're not safe out there. You make yourself a target when you turn your back on the love of God and you try to, you know, fulfill God's plans and purposes for your life apart from the will of God. And he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Right? I mean, who's going to come in and bring up a charge against you? Now, we know this as far as, you know, our, our, our judicial system. And from our judi judicial system, we see that uh, if the highest appointed judge in our highest judicial system, which is the Supreme Court, if the highest appointed judge in our system declares you innocent, then nothing can override that. That's a fact. Dude, if your case gets taken up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court uh, rules that innocent, you're innocent, dude, there's, there's no other court under that that can override that. That's, that's just you know, man's law and that's true. Now that applies also to God's, to God's law, right? He says, man, who's gonna bring a charge against God's elect? Right? That's what the Lord did for us. You know, God is the ultimate judge of all creation. God is the ultimate judge. And that's what he did for us. You know, God has declared us righteous as we repent, turn from our sins, and trust in Jesus. You're righteous. You're forgiven. You're justified. But Lord, what about this? You're righteous. You're forgiven. You're justified. But Lord, you know my past and this, that. You're righteous. You're forgiven. And you're justified. And no one can overrule that. So Paul says, hey, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Yeah, sometimes, you know, the enemy... Those thoughts in our head, our past, bring up those charges against us to condemn us. But it's God's highest law, right? He's the ultimate judge. He says, no. No one can overturn what God has already said about you. God has called you beloved. God has called you son. He's called you daughter. He's called you righteous. He's called you forgiven. No one could declare you otherwise. And then he says, who is it that condemns us then? And as a Christian, man, you, you'll feel condemnation. It's going to happen. I pray that it doesn't, but for the most, most of us, it happens. Why? Because none of us are spotless, perfect. We all messed up. And when we seek to, 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 to glorify God, when we seek to please God in the way that we live, man, it's those mistakes that just boom, pop up, right? And condemn us. Right? And so as a Christian, you're going to feel condemnation sometimes for your past. Sometimes it's from the world. Uh, sometimes it's from the enemy of our soul, Satan. You're going to feel it. But that condemnation is of no effect, Paul would say. Why? Because it's Christ who died for us to forgive us of all those things that come up to condemn you. 
right? All those things that 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 uh, that once brought us shame, hey man, Christ has shut those things up. <laughs> Sometimes I'm I'm working, driving, whatever I'm going through in my life, and these thoughts come up and these things from my past. I'm just like, shut up, <laughs> I'm washed, right? It's all under the blood. It's all covered by the blood of Jesus. Right? It's biblical. And he says this. He says, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, will famine, will nakedness, will peril, meaning trouble, or sword, right? Physical uh, tribulation. Now, interesting that these are all the things that the early church suffered through. These are all the things that the early, early church suffered through. When it came to the time of Caesar Nero, man, that guy was crazy. He would he blamed all the Christians for a huge fire that, that, that happened there at Rome. And he would he would make a decree to go around the whole uh, city of Rome and, 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 and gather up all the Christians. He would put them on stakes, tie them up, uh, dip them in kerosene and light them up. And he would light up the city of Rome at night with Christians. That was nuts. That was nuts. And so all these things that, that Paul is... Paul is, uh, is, is, is talking about here. Man, it's all things that the early church went through. But also, there are things that believers in Christ are going to suffer through. I'm not saying we're going to get tied up and lit on fire. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not trying to discourage you, but man, we go through suffering. We go through suffering. And man, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are going through suffering. Who are going through this type of suffering. Right? We don't see it a lot here in the U.S., but man, go... Across the border, go to Mexico, go to you know Guatemala, go to Colombia, go to South America, go anywhere else around the world, and believers are suffering. And there's people in China who, if you get caught with the Bible, man, you're dead. North Korea, same thing. Right? Saudi Arabia, they're man, don't even call yourself a Christian because that's it, man. You put a, literally a, a target on your back and you're dead. Right? But Paul says, look, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Will all these things can all these things separate us from the love of Christ? And so really what he's saying is, what's it going to take for you to separate yourself from the love of Christ? What is it that's strong enough to separate you from what Christ did before the foundation of the world to call you into himself? Right? Knowing that God knew you and predestined you to be a son or daughter, knowing that God loves you, you say, man, are you going to allow any of these things to separate you from the love of God? Are you going to allow any, any of these things to separate you from, from me, you would say? And the thing is that, man, we're all going to go through these things. And the sooner we make that decision in our mind, you know what? Nothing's going to separate me from the love of God. Nothing. The better. Because when we get hit, hey man, it's not going to take you by surprise. You've already made that decision in your heart. When the trials come, when the tribulations come, because they will come, you've already set that firm in your heart. You know what? I prepared for this. I prepared myself mentally. And I told myself that when this day comes, I was going to stand firm on that solid rock that is Christ. Right? There's this quote by um, Elizabeth Elliot. She, she, if you're not familiar with who Elizabeth Elliot is, she's the wife to one of the uh, missionaries who, like in the 1950s, there's a group of about four or five of them who went to the jungles of Ecuador to, to share the gospel with uh, some indigenous tribes that were like killing each other every single day. They were the most violent tribe you know, of that time. And they were killing each other every single day, right? They spoke a foreign language, of course. And the government didn't know what to do with them. Because they were just like killing left and right. They were like out for blood. And, and these missionaries, they, they said in their heart that they wanted to go over there and preach the gospel to them. Preach Christ to them. Preach forgiveness. Preach love. And so for like about a whole year, all of them moved down there to Ecuador. 
for about a whole year, they would go and just kind of try to make contact. And then when it finally came time to make contact with them, they got speared to death. All the husbands of, 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 of uh, well, all the missionaries, they got speared to death. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until later on that their wives went down there and their wives were the ones who were able to minister to the tribes and, and live with them for years. And eventually uh, even print a whole Bible in their own language and, 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 and the whole tribe got saved. But this was one of the wives of, of missionary Jim Elliott. And she would, as, as she was there in her time with, those, uh, with, with that tribe, she wrote this. She wrote a book called um, These Strange Ashes. And it's kind of like a diary of, of just her thoughts that, that went through her mind while she was there. And she would write this. She would say, quote, To be a follower of the crucified means, sooner or later, a personal encounter with the cross. And she would say, and the cross always entails loss. Right? The cross always entails loss. Whenever you come to the cross, you can't expect not to lose something. Right? Because the cross itself always entails loss. Loss of what? Loss of life. Loss of your own life. Right? There's a scripture there in Judges. I love this scripture. You know, and, uh, as I was reading through the Bible this year, it kind of stood out to me. And it's in Judges chapter 3. And at this point in the book of Judges, it's when the nation of Israel was, they, are, they were inheriting the land that God promised them, right? Their, their, their 40 year journey throughout the wilderness is over. They went to Canaan, the, God, the land that God promised them. They were able to distribute a specific pieces of land to each tribe. And then eventually their leaders started dying off and they had to pretty much uh, just conquer the whole land. And it says this in Judges chapter three, verse one and two, it says, now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only, this was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known, known it. And so as the children of Israel were going in there and they were inheriting their land, right, there were other people groups around there that, that, that were inhabiting the land that, that God said, you know, you got to wipe them out. You got to wipe them out, man. They're, they're wicked. They're wicked. They're they're killing their own kids. They're sacrificing their own kids to demons. You know, they're, they're, the whole nation is the whole world is just polluted. Like you gotta wipe these people out, right? And inherit the land. But notice that it says that God left certain nations there. Again, now these are the nations which the Lord left, that He might test Israel by them, right? That is all those who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. And so we see that God left certain nations there. He, God could have wiped them out Himself. Uh, got rid of them Even somehow made them Migrate to some other land But yet God left Those opposing nations In that area That they were to inhabit Why? Because God was trying To teach them something He says One so that they would know To do war God bless you And two So that God might teach them Right And so these nations That God left That were going to be At battle with them hey, God was going to use them As A tool To teach the nation of Israel and also so that they may know. They may know God. And so someone may ask, man, as we're going through suffering, tribulation, all these things, someone may ask, I think I've done this before. God, if you love me, why don't you just shout to me from suffering? If God loves me, why doesn't he just protect me from suffering? Right, man, why not? If we're not going to suffer in heaven, then why doesn't he just spare me now? Let's get a, let's get a head start. It's a fair question. But we see that God did not shelter us from the difficulties of life. 
It doesn't shelter us from the difficulties of life because we need them for our spiritual growth. Right? He's going to use them as those tools in our life to sharpen us, to mold us, to shape us, to teach us, to speak to us. Right? And not only does He promise to work things out for our good, like in Romans 8.28 says, but He also promises to be there with us as we're going through all these sufferings. Man, not only is He going to work it out for good, but He's going to be right there with you. He'll be right there with you. And so, whatever that suffering may look like in, in your life, one thing is for sure, for all of us. It may look different in everyone's life, but there's one thing that's for sure. And that is that God is aware of it. He's aware of your suffering. He's aware of your trials, your tribulations. And Him, in His sovereignty, allowed it. I always think, man, God, you could have, if you wanted to, spared me from this. For whatever reason, you allowed it. Right? Again, that coffee filter, that pot. Put your coffee in, filters right there, the water goes through. What you have in the cup, in the, in the coffee mug, is what first passes through that filter, right? And so for us, we're that cup. Whatever falls in our life, whatever God allows, He first allowed it to go through that filter of His love, of His mercy, of His grace for us. Right? So He's aware of it. He's aware of it. And again, we see that, that God wants to use that in our lives to, to test us and to teach us. Like it says there in Judges, right? To test us and show us sometimes that, man, we're not as holy as we thought. Or we're not as strong or we're not as wise or we're not as loving. Man, trials will do that to you. You think you're something, some big shot in the kingdom of God and all of a sudden trials hit and trials come and you're like, man, I guess I wasn't that big. Right? Hey, man, I've gone through it. And also to teach us to rely on Him for what? For comfort, for, for provision, for strength, for guidance. For pretty much everything. And God will do that. Us as believers, man, we come, we become sometimes like self-dependent, thinking, all right, God, man, I got this. You did all the hard work and I, I got it from here. And God's like, no, man, just continue trusting in me in everything, every step of the way. Right? And interesting that the Bible, speaking about suffering, the Bible actually promises, promises us that there's a degree of fellowship, there's this intimacy of fellowship with the Lord. Right? In which we can know Christ better through suffering. What? Yeah, the Bible promises that there's a degree of fellowship that you can have with God, that you can only have with God through suffering. Paul would say this in Philippians 3.10. He says, hey, that I may know Him, talking about Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and notice, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. There's a degree of fellowship that we can have with the Lord that we can only have with the Lord through suffering. And God wants us to experience that. Not because He wants to hurt us, but because He wants to take you deeper into intimacy with Him. Right? God wants to take us to a deeper place in our relationship with Him. And sometimes that road to intimacy with the Lord is called suffering. But notice what Paul ends with. He says this in verse 37. He says, Yet in all these things, all these things we were just mentioned. Paul says, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And all these things, trials, tribulation, suffering, nakedness, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, sword. He says, and all these things, hey, we're more than conquerors through him, through Christ who loved us. And he says in verse 38, for I'm persuaded, meaning man, nothing can change my mind. He says, I'm, I'm fixed. I, I fix these thoughts in my head and that's it. No one can change this. 
It says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. He says, nor a height, nor depth. He says, no, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amazing. And so though it might, it might look like we're getting beat up left and right, though it may look like, man, we're losing the battle as we're going through it, because that's what it looks like, man. When you're getting beat up and when you're in the midst of a trial, it looks like, dude, you're, you're a Christian? You're going through all that stuff? Right? But Paul says, when you're going through all these things, and look, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he says, and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for just these one. Boom. Recording. So the book of Romans, chapter 9. Uh, and again, I, I've been having an awesome time going through the book of Romans. I don't know about you guys. Uh, but we get to this portion out in, the, in chapter 9 of the book of Romans where Paul, man... Uh, we see that we've had eight chapters of Paul just giving us some just heavy spiritual truths. For eight chapters, for eight chapters, he's just been, he's been plowing away, telling us about these, the uh, salvation by grace alone, right? The righteousness that comes uh, to us through Christ uh, and, and, and the justification, right, of our sins that, that come through just simply believing in Christ, right? He's been giving us some, some heavy spiritual truths. Uh, Paul has, has been mentioning to us and to, and to the Romans, the hearers of this letter, how it is not by works, right? It's not by what we can do to, to earn, our, earn our salvation. But Paul would say, hey man, it's by faith. It's by faith in what Jesus did on the cross for us by the sacrifice. And so now after eight chapters of Paul just giving us some deep spiritual truths, right, uh, concerning salvation and, and justification in, in, in Christ, he now kind of, if you look at the whole book of Romans, it, it kind of looks like an interruption, because from chapters 1 through 8, he's talking about justification, salvation, right, righteousness, uh, Christ. And then for these three chapters, 8, I mean, 9, 10, and 11, he begins to just share his heart, uh, his burdened heart for, for his people, man, for, for, for the nation of Israel. Right? Keep in mind that Paul was uh, an, a Hebrew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he would call himself the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? The, most, the Pharisee of Pharisees. The dude was, was, was taught. He was taught since, since a young kid. He was taught in the, in the ways of God. He was taught the, the Old Testament law. He, was, uh, he made it his aim in life to become the most skilled, the most studied, uh, the most knowledgeable Pharisee or teacher of the law. Right? And so when he had uh, this, this divine encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, it's like his whole life was flipped upside down because he was persecuting Christians. He was killing Christians. He was sending guys off to prison. Right? He was persecuting families, driving them out of their homes. He made it his aim to, 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 to make the life of Christians, to, to put an end to this uh, movement of Christianity on earth. And that was his aim. And he thought that God had put him on this earth to kill Christianity. And all of a sudden he has an encounter with the living God. With Jesus Christ and, and everything is, is flipped. But now Paul has his burden for the rest of the nation of Israel who has, like him, at one point rejected Christ from being their, their Messiah, from being their Savior. And so Paul now interrupts the, this discussion right about justification and he dedicates three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, to his burden for the nation of Israel. right? And so in these next three chapters, uh, we see that Paul's going to answer some, some questions that may come to mind. As a believer, looking at the spiritual state of the nation of Israel at his time, and even for us as well right now, right? And, for, and looking at Israel as a whole and, and their rejection of the Messiah. Because keep in mind that God chose the nation of Israel as his special people. 
Yet, now they have rejected Jesus and have become enemies of God. And so, the question would be, well, was God not able to keep those whom He chose? If God chose the nation of Israel to work through them, to bring forth the Messiah, then, and now they've rejected, they've rejected God, was God not able to keep them? Right? And someone for the Christian might think, well, man, if God wasn't able to keep the nation of Israel, then can God keep me in my salvation? Right? All these different questions that, that, would, ar- that would arise, and Paul's going to address those, right? Address those questions, thinking, man, if God couldn't keep that, those that he chose, then am I secure in God? Right? Will God be able to keep me in his love? And so the question comes up as we look at the nation of Israel and their rejection of the Messiah, the rejection of Christ, of Jesus. And so the question comes up, what does Israel's rejection say about God? What does it say about the nation of Israel? And what does that mean for us, right? Uh, the believers who are not you know, Jewish, we're called, the Bible calls us Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. What does that mean? What does that mean for about God? What does that say about God? What does that mean for the nation of Israel who rejected? And what does that mean for us as believers now, as New Testament believers? And so Paul gets into that in these next three chapters. We're only going to cover about one today. But beginning there in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says this. He says, I tell you the truth. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. He says, I'm not lying. He says, my conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says that I have great sorrow. I have great sorrow and I have continual grief in my heart. Why? He says, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, that my countrymen, according to the the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, of, of from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternity of blessed God. Amen. Right? And so, Paul, he, he opens up chapter 9 by saying, man, he says, look, I'm not lying, guys. What I'm about to say, I say it with sincerity. And he was truly sincere. He says, look, I'm not lying. Christ and the Holy Spirit are my witness that I'm not lying when I tell you this. And then he says, I'm burdened for my nation. I'm burdened for the nation of Israel, Paul would say, right? And so in chapter 8, Paul left us, at the end of chapter 8, Paul left us with these glorious statements saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to say, uh, will death, will life, will angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, will, will, will mountain highs, will valley lows, will, will anything created separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Right? And then he'll say, none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet here he is in chapter 9, sorrowful. Sorrowful. Why? Because he is looking at a nation, the nation of Israel, who had rejected their Messiah and had separated themselves from that love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He ended up chapter 8 by saying, man, who can separate us from the love of God? And then chapter 9, burden, right? Because he's seen the nation as a whole separated from the love of God. Not because of God, right? But because of them. Because of them. And so we see that, 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 that as for Paul, you know, he was considered actually a traitor to the Jewish nation. Uh, the Jews as a whole at that time, they would look at him and they would consider him a traitor, right? They would, uh, man, they would consider him as dead. You know, you're dead to us. You're nothing to us, man. You're a traitor. You turned your back on your family. You turned your back on your heritage. You turned your back on your culture. You turned your back on, on God, right? You turned your back on, on, on the Jews. They would consider him those things. Why? Because he ministered to the Gentiles. He taught freedom from the law of Moses. He taught freedom from circumcision, 
Right? He taught that God had a plan to save the Gentiles in the same exact way that he was to save the Jews. That is by faith. And for the Jews hearing this, it would be like, man, no way. He says, no way God who chose us and chose our father Abraham and all these different, you know, in all these years, no way that God is going to save us in the same way that he's going to save the Gentiles. Keep in mind that, 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 that to, the, to the Jewish hearer at this time where, when Paul's writing this, their idea, their philosophy, they thought that God created Gentiles or non-Jews for one reason and one reason only. And that is to keep the flames of hell burning. And so for them to see now that Paul, the Apostle Paul, former Pharisee, one of them is saying, look, God loves the Gentiles. God, God planned it all along that they would be saved and that, and that they would join us in heaven. And they're going to get saved the same way that you are, through faith. Not through circumcision, not through keeping of the law, not through any heritage, but by faith. So they were appalled at this. They would say, you traitor, you backstabber, right? You're not one of us. And so he ministered to the Gentiles, right? And so in this chapter, Paul expresses his love for the nation of Israel and his desire for their spiritual well-being. They're saying, you know, you're a traitor. They're saying, you're not one of us. And Paul says, hey, I love you guys. I love you guys. I am one of you. I am one of you, right? He says, I love you guys. And so he expresses his love. He expresses his heart for the nation, right? And so in chapter 9, he describes, we're going to see that he's going to describe Israel's past election, how God chose them, Right? In chapter 10, he's going to describe their present rejection. God chose them, chapter 9. Chapter 10, they rejected. And then chapter 11, but God still has future plans for the nation of Israel. Right? Chapter 11. In chapter 11, I believe he opens up by saying, uh, is God done with the Jews? Is, is God done with Israel? And he says, certainly not. He says, for I myself am a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? And so for many of those who, thought, who, who still to this day, there's this popular teaching within uh, the Christian church. And a lot of popular teachers, you know, believe this and buy into this. And uh, it's false. That they would, it's, the, the fancy term for it is called replacement theology. Saying, all right, the church now as a whole has replaced the nation of Israel in the Bible. Right? And all the promises that belong to the nation of Israel as a whole, as a nation, now uh, belong to the church. Because the church, because the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. And now the, the church has taken their place. It's called replacement theology. Right? A lot of the great reformers, they believe in these things, but yet it's not true. Right, we see it's not true. And so in 70 AD, when the general Roman, uh, general, uh, so general, Roman general Titus came in and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, that's when they it confirmed, right, that's it. God is done with the Jewish, with the, with the nation of, the, uh, of Israel. But then what happened in 1949, when 48 or 49, when Israel again became a nation, and all of a sudden, man, this, this land that was, uh, that, that these people that were scattered, this land that was desolate, all of a sudden, man, the Jews come back to, the, to, to Israel. They come back to Jerusalem, right? And all of a sudden, the, the, the land belong, belongs to them again. And all these different teachings that came during that period of time, replacement theology. No, God's done with the Jews. Now it's about the church, the church, the church. And Paul would say, no. He says, God is still going to work with the Jews. God still has a plan for the Jews. And as we went through the book of Revelation, we see that that, uh, that that plan that God still has for the Jews, a lot of it has to do with uh, the last days, which is the seven-year tribulation period where God is going to restore and God is going to bring and God is going to open up the eyes of a lot of uh, Jews. And they're going to see, man, we missed them. And they were right. Jesus, Jesus, that was him. That was him. Right? And so God still has future plans and Paul's going to cover it in chapter 11. But I don't want to skip too much ahead. And so he would say, there we're going back to these first five verses. He would say, man, he would say, I wish that I myself could be accursed from Christ so that Israel could be saved. Right? That's what he said. And he said it sincerely. Now that word accursed, the Greek word for it is anathema. 
says, I wish that I myself could be accursed. I wish that I myself could be anathema in the Greek, which means, literally means, cursed to the darkest place in hell immediately. And, excuse my language, but in, in, in the most, you know, sincere definition, he says, I wish that I myself could be damned to the darkest place of hell if they could be saved. It's the same word, a curse, that, that, that Paul would use later on in the book of Galatians in chapter 1 as he's talking about uh, false teachers coming in and teaching these false things to the church. And he would tell the church there in the book of Galatians chapter 1, he would say, man, if anybody else, if another apostle or if an angel or if anybody comes in and teaches anything else other than what we've taught you, that is the gospel of Christ, salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, through grace alone, he says, let him be the same word, anathema, let him be accursed. And now Paul is saying, man, he says, I wish that I myself could be accursed if it means that the nation of Israel could be saved. Right? Now, it's not that they were unable to be saved, but it's that they had rejected God. They had rejected Christ. And so he says, man, he says, we see that, that he wasn't exaggerating. Right? In other words, he's saying, man, if I could give up my own salvation. That's what he's saying. If I could give up my own salvation. If I could give up my own, if I could give up my own salvation so that the nation of Israel could be saved. He's saying, I would do it in a heartbeat. That's heavy. But that was the heart of Paul the Apostle. That he would give up his own salvation so that someone else could come and know Jesus. It's extreme. And God would never do that. Right? God would never allow that. It, it, it's, a, it's a silly thing to ask for, but, but it's, it comes from a noble heart. And, he, and really it comes from uh, the heart of a man who is just burdened for his people. And more than burdened for his people, he's burdened for their souls. Right? I love this quote by, by Charles Spurgeon. He said... This great passion for souls gave Paul perspective. He said, lesser things did not trouble him because he was troubled by a greater thing, the souls of men. The souls of men. So he says, man, little things in the world didn't trouble Paul. Why? Because he was troubled by something much more greater. And that is the souls of men. Souls, right? And so we see the heart of Paul the Apostle where he would just say, man, he says, if I could give my own salvation so that my people could be saved, he says, man, I'll do it in a heartbeat. Right? That's the cry of a shepherd. That's the cry of a shepherd. Right? And so we see that uh, the nation of Israel as a nation, we see that they were handpicked by God to carry the seed of the Messiah, to carry the seed of, of, of Christ through their lineage. Right? If, if, if you open up the book of Matthew and if you open up the Matthew, the first chapter, Luke, the third chapter, we're given genealogies. Uh, Matthew brings it all the way back to Abraham and Luke brings it all the way up to, to Adam. And, and we follow this, this lineage, right? All the way through, through, through their forefathers and eventually it gets to Mary, to Joseph, and to Christ. And so we know that historically, the nation of Israel were handpicked by God to carry the seed of the Messiah as Jesus all the way from Abraham to Mary, right? They had the, the privilege of, of, man, of God's presence with them in the wilderness when, when they were brought up out of Egypt, right? For those 40 years, we're told that, that, that God's spirit was with them. He was a cloud by day. He was a fire by night. He would lead them wherever they went. They, weren't, they never got hungry. Well, they got hungry, but they never starved, right? Because God provided for their needs. He provided for, you know, they, if they were thirsty, He gave them water. They were hungry, He gave them food. We're told that their, that their clothes never wore out because they grew with them as they, as, they, as they traveled. God was their everything. They had the very presence of God with them there in the wilderness. They had, it was a, what do you call it, a privilege, right? They were the most privileged people. And yet, they rejected God. They rejected Christ from, from ruling over them. And so, does that mean that God's word failed? Did God choose them 
And then somewhere along the way, God's plan failed, and that's why they rejected him. That's what some people would, would, would think, right? Did God's promises fail? Did God's word fail? Being that Israel had now rejected God. And Paul would say there in verse 5, you know, that, that, that Christ is God. Notice, notice what he says. He says, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. He says, Christ who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. Amen. Paul is always saying, look, Jesus is God. And, and when Christ came and they rejected him, they rejected God from ruling over them. Right? And so, again, now that, now that they've rejected, God chose them and they've rejected. So did God's plan fail? Right? It didn't. But, but Paul's going to address this. And he says this in verse 6. He says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It says, nor are they all children because they are, they are the seed of Abraham. But, and he quotes there from, from Genesis, he says, in Isaac your, she, your seed shall be called. And verse 8 he says, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, meaning carnally, says, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as a seed. What does he mean? We'll get into it. And so he says, to those listening who think, man, well, did God's promises fail because the nation of Israel rejected God? And it was God's plan all along that he would use the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah into the world, that he would be their Messiah, be their Christ, and also the Christ of the whole world, but yet they rejected him. So does that mean that there was, that there was a fault in God's plan? Does that mean that there was a fault in God's world? Does that mean that there was a fault in God's purposes or in his word? And he would say no. In verse 6 he says, it's not that God's word has taken no effect. Right? It's not that God's word has taken no effect. Meaning that God's word did exactly what it was sent out to fulfill. That phrase, taking no effect, it actually gives us that picture of a, of a ship. Of a ship out on the ocean, setting sail for, 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 a, for a certain destination, but going off course. And so he's saying, hey, it's not that God's word was sent out and it kind of just went off course. He's saying, hey, God is sovereign. God is sovereign and his word is true, right? And God is faithful no matter what man might do with his word. And so God is faithful, God is true, God is sovereign, no matter what the response is from the individual, right? And if, I, if God comes to me, right, salvation is offered to me, and if I reject, that doesn't mean that God's, Salvation is, 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 is not enough. That just means that I reject it. Right? The fault isn't with God, but it's with me. And so God's word is true no matter what men or individuals might do with his word. It's still true. Right? And then he says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Right? So he's saying, just because they were descendants of Abraham did not mean that they were entitled to God's promises to Abraham. And, and that's what they were banking on. The Jews that, 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 uh, that Paul is writing to and a lot of Orthodox Jews that you talk to today, they're like, oh, man, we're good, right? We're descendants of Abraham. And they'll proudly say, oh, I'm uh, of this, you know, my family comes from this tribe. Or, or hey, man, we, have, we own property in Israel, right? We're, we're direct descendants of Abraham, right? We're the seed. We're the chosen ones. And, and, and the, the people whom Paul was addressing were religious Jews who were banking or who were trusting on the fact that they were descendants of Abraham, they were the nation of Israel, they were descendants of Abraham, and, and, and thus they thought, all right, well, God's going to save us be just because of whose grand, 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 great, great grandkids we are, just because of that. And Paul would say, hey, look, they're not all Israel who are of Israel, right? Just because you're descendants of Abraham, he'd tell them, doesn't mean that you're entitled to, to God's promises to Abraham. Now, interesting that that's actually a play on words. 
If you read it, kind of, you kind of just read through it. You don't, you don't catch it. But, but, but Paul's actually using this play on words because that word Israel means governed by God. That's what it means. That's what Israel means, governed by God. The first time you ever hear it is in Genesis chapter 32, as God spoke to Jacob. The story goes that as Jacob was going to go meet his brother, he saw after a long time of just of not seeing him, right? He's going back to his homeland. All of a sudden, he hears, "Oh man, Esau's coming with all kinds of guys. With like 400 guys, they're gonna kill us." And, and, and Jacob had, had been striving with God his whole life and with his brother, with his family. The dude was just, he was out there, right? He was a knucklehead. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he gets to the place where he was just at the end of his rope. And we're told that, that, that he camps out one night on, 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 the, on this side of the river Jabbok and that an angel appears to him, which is really a, a pre-incarnate Christ. Christ appeared to him in the Old Testament in the form of an angel. And we're told that he wrestled with Jacob all night long. He wrestled with them, literally just wrestled with them. And we're told that at the end of, of the wrestling match, uh, the angel said that to him, I gotta go, I'm done. And he went, boom, and he touched the, 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 the side of his, of his hip. He, you know, he, 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 uh, he disabled them. And J Jacob just held on to him saying, look, don't go, don't go until you bless me, right? Jacob was broken. He came to a place of just brokenness in his life, excuse me, of broken in his life. And he recognized and he told God, God, I need you. You're my, you're my, you're my last hope, I need you. And it was right there that he had this personal encounter with God and God changed his heart. And after that, God told him this there in Genesis 32, 28, he says, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and you have prevailed. Now, the name Jacob means conniver, heel catcher, right? Tripper upper, right? It gives the idea of, uh, you know, somebody running a race and, and the guy behind you coming, they trip you up on the heel so you can fall and they get ahead. That was definitive of Jacob's life. And yet when he wrestled with God, at the end, God told him, look, your name's not going to be called Jacob no more. You're not going to be identified by your past anymore. But now your name is going to be called Israel, governed by God. And so Paul uses this as a play on words. And he says, not all who are of the nation of Israel are governed by God. You catch that? Not all who are Israel are Israel. I mean, not all who are of the nation of Israel are letting themselves be governed by God. Alright, it's like saying, hey man, not all those who, are, who call themselves Christians are Christians. And we know that. We know that's true, right? Not everyone who, who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. Right? But who's a Christian if you're a follower of Christ? If you've been born again? That is born again. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God. Right? That's it. It's not about works. It's not, it's not about deeds. It's not about anything else. It's not about an affiliation to a church. But it's just, hey man, have you believed in Jesus Christ in your heart? Have you followed Him? That's it, right? And so Paul would say, hey, not all are, are Israel, right? Who are Israel because they're not all allowing themselves to be governed by God. If they did, then they would have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and they would be following him. And so we see that, that their rejection was not God's doing. Hey, God didn't make them reject Christ, right? It wasn't God's doing, but it was theirs. God gave them the promises. He gave them the, 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 the lineage. He gave them the, 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 the inheritance, but also gave them a free will. And in their free will, they chose to reject Christ. Right? They rejected their Messiah in their free will. And so we see that, that, that their rejection did not mean that God's word had failed. Right? God's promise to Abraham was, In Isaac your, your seed shall be called. And so most of the physical seed or, or, or lineage, the descendants of Abraham, rejected Christ. There were a lot of Jews who believed in Christ because that was a whole New Testament church. The first century church was... Mainly Jews. 
That's heavy. You think about that. All the apostles, all the disciples, Jewish. All the first church planters, Jewish. That's heavy. That's heavy because you look at it now, and then for the most part, they've rejected Christ, and they say that, oh, Jesus is the God of the Gentiles. And, and, and yet, or they say, oh, the Bible is, uh, the New Testament is a Gentile Bible. And yet when they read it, they say, man, Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were all Jews. All these guys were Jews, right? And so we see that most of the, of the physical seed of the descendants of Abraham had, had rejected Christ. But God still called a seed to himself, you know, through faith. That's the church. And so we as a church are the children of promise that Paul mentions here. We're the children of promise. We're that seed of promise, right? That spiritual seed of Abraham, not through uh, lineage, not through uh, you know, our ancestry, but, but through faith. It's through our faith. He would say later on in the book of Galatians, there in Galatians 3.26, I'll read it for you. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. He says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so we see that, that, that there is this other seed. Not another seed, but there's this other side to the seed. There's a seed that's the physical descendants of Abraham, but there's also a seed that comes by belief in Jesus Christ, by faith. There's spiritual seed, right? And so that's what Paul is saying. He says, hey, it doesn't mean that all these promises pertain just to the nation of Israel, but it pertains to all those who believe. That's us, if you believe this morning. And he goes on to say there in verse 9, he says, For this is the word of promise. It says, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son, as he's quoting uh, there, there in the book of Genesis. It says, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. He says, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Right? In God's words. And so going now into, into the history of the nation of Israel. Right? Paul using this to kind of further uh, express his, his thought here. And he says that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Meaning that God chose to do the things he did that certain way. Why? He says so that the purpose of God... According to election, not according to works, not according to performance, not according to, you know, their merit, but according to God's election. It's just that that might stand. And so first, before we go into anything else, you know, it's important to know here that, that, that in the context of election, right? If, if you've, you know, been around, if you've been, been a believer for a while, this, you know where I'm going with this, you know, that this, this word election, right? It's important to know here that, that, that in the context of election... Paul is referring to God's choosing or God's electing of the nation of Israel as a whole to fulfill his purposes. To fulfill, now, he's not talking about an individual, and this cannot be applied to God's purposes in the life of an individual, you know, when it comes to salvation. And I say this because there are those in the church who teach that, 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 that God has elected some in the world for salvation and elected others for uh, eternal damnation. Right? That he has elected some to be saved and some to reject, reject Christ and go to hell. And we see it's false. 
right? The Bible does not teach that, right? There's a, there's, there, the Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and electing and choosing those to be saved, but also it teaches man's responsibility to respond to God's choosing. And it's both. Both things go, 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 go hand in hand, right? I, I believe it was Spurgeon, he said one time that, uh, that, that after a sermon, I guess, on, on Romans, uh, one of the people at the church came up to, and asked him, and he said, he says, uh, he says, hey, Spurgeon, he says, I can't reconcile God's choosing, God's sovereignty, and man's responsibility. He says, I, I, I read the Bible and trying to, I'm trying to reconcile both together. He says, I can't reconcile them. And his response was, he's all, well, you don't reconcile friends, right? I mean, he, you don't need to reconcile them because they go hand in hand, right? There's no need to, to explain one away and explain the other one away and separate it and choose, all right, what do you believe, this or that? Nowhere in the Bible are we called to choose either this or that, right? But we're called to choose the Word of God as a whole, right? So there's no need to reconcile best friends. And God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to choose are best friends. I mean, that God has chosen us that we would know Him, that we would be saved. But He's also given us a responsibility to choose whether we're going to respond to that or not and how we're going to respond to that. And that goes hand in hand. And so moving on from that, we see that, that, that Paul is making now the case, you know, that, that God's reason for choosing the nation of Israel says it's because He is sovereign. And that's it. He's not going to say it's because the nation of Israel was good, because they were holy, because they were uh, better than any other nation. Because if you look at their history here in the Old Testament, they were messed up. Time after time after time after time, they would uh, depart from God's ways and go worship idols. Right? They would uh, get into some heavy idolatry, start worshiping these false gods, doing some pretty dark stuff. I, I mean, so it wasn't because of their good performance, but Paul would say, hey, God chose them. God chose the nation of Israel to work through because he's God and because he's sovereign, right? It's not that God chose them because they were better but, or because they did more. But God's purpose in calling them as a nation was not because of their works, right? It says, but of him who calls simply because he's God and he's sovereign. And Paul's not going to try to explain that. So I won't either, right? And so if it was according to works, though, you know, think about it. If, if, if God chose us to be his kids according to works, if it was because of works, then things would have turned out differently. It would have been different. We see that as, as Paul is going through, through their history, he says that God chose to bless Abraham through his son Isaac. If you're familiar with the story, at that point, Abraham already had a son by the name of, the name of Ishmael, whom, whom they conceived with uh, one, of their, one, of their, one of their servants. That's a whole other story for another day. All right? And so God, uh, Abraham already had a son, but yet he told Abraham, look, man, I'm not going to bless you through Ishmael. Because that's a work of the flesh. I'm going to bless you through your son Isaac. Right? And so God chose to bless the nation of Israel. Bless Abraham through Isaac. And then he says that God chose to bless Jacob. Which is Isaac's son. One of Isaac's sons. The younger brother over Esau. His older brother. And you, if you're familiar with that story. Isaac and Rebekah. They had two kids. Uh, Jacob and Esau. They were born at the same time. They were, they, they were twins. Not identical. But what's the other word? Fraternal? Fraternal, they were fraternal twins. They weren't identical, but they were fraternal. But they were born at the same time. But Esau was born just a few seconds before, right? And so he was technically older. And so according to their culture and their tradition, the the blessing would go to the older son, right, the firstborn son. But yet God spoke to Isaac and Rebekah and said, "Look," He says, "The younger shall serve the older." Meaning God chose the younger brother Jacob, the knucklehead, through whom He was going to work, and not the older brother Esau, right? And so the point is this: that. Because Israel rejected God doesn't mean that 
God makes some God makes mistakes, right? Because Israel rejected God doesn't mean that God made a mistake when He chose them. Because someone would think, well, if God knew that they were going to reject them, why would He choose them? It must be that God's plan went all wrong, or it must be that God wasn't sovereign in His choosing. It must be that maybe God made a mistake. And Paul's saying, look, God doesn't make any mistakes when He chooses. And for us as well, speaking about now about salvation, man, if you've given your life to the Lord, that means that God has chosen you for salvation. Right? And, and God has chosen you to know Him, to be saved before the foundations of the earth. And I've heard someone say, oh, he says, oh, he says I'm glad that God chose me before the foundations of the earth, before I was born, because I don't think He would choose me afterwards. Right? And, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny thing to, to kind of to you know, uh, uh, entertain, but it's true. I think about my life and there's nothing worthy in my life that would make God say, all right, I want him on my team. If anything, oh man, let's get this guy out of here. But yet God chose us for salvation before we were even born, right? And so Paul is saying, right, if it were because of their response or their good works, he says, then God wouldn't have chosen Jacob or his brother Esau. Why? Because Jacob was a knucklehead, right? He was a knucklehead from birth. I mean, his name means heel catcher, conniver. Uh, right, he's a tripper upper, and then he says, But yet, God says there in Malachi 1 2 3, he says, But yet, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, right? And so, Paul trying to explain uh, God's sovereignty and choosing, he says, Look, it doesn't make sense. He says, God chooses the way he chooses in a way that we can't explain. He says, If I could explain it, then, 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 uh, in my understanding, God should have chosen Esau instead of Jacob. But instead, God says, Jacob I have chosen, and Esau I have hated. All right? So he's saying, man, God chose Jacob over Esau, contrary to what we think should have been done. And so God chose the nation of Israel for his purposes, contrary to what we think should have happened. Or God chose us for salvation, contrary to you know, what even uh, the, the world thinks, thinks you know, should have happened. And so when he says there that, 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 that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, it's important to know. That's not that God hated Esau, right? It's a bad translation here. But literally the, the word hated here in the Greek is translated to loved less. And so keep in mind that, that, that the point of this is God saying God chose Jacob over Esau. And so when God says Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, the, what it means, what he's saying is Jacob I have chosen and Esau I have rejected. Right? Now God loved both of them He loved Jacob He loved Esau And God did bless Esau If you go back to the book of Genesis We see that, that Esau became a whole nation He had thousands and thousands of descendants Who became a whole nation And God did bless them But when it says that God That Jacob I have loved And Esau I have hated It means Esau I have loved less Not because of God But because of Esau If I had a whiteboard I would paint I would draw up God's love Right here Here's a shower I'll use a shower as an example Right, you have the shower head, you have the water coming out, this is God's love. And Jacob was right here, right under it, right under the spout. Oh man, I'm just in God's love. Right? So God says, Jacob, I have love. Because Esau, I have hated. Why? Because Esau turned his back on the spout. So it's not that God didn't love him, but it's that Jacob was not in the position to receive, I mean, Esau was not in the position to receive God's love. But he still loved him. It's like the prodigal son. Right? If, you're, if you're a parent here and if you have a, a child who has gone wayward, do you stop loving the child any less because they're not in your home anymore? No, right? You still love them as much, but yet you can't show them the same love that you would if they were in the home. If you was in the house, I'd be up in the morning, hey, give me a breakfast. Here you go, I love you. 
hey, I'm going to the grocery store. I'm coming back. Wanted to from King Taco Burrito. I go here. You go. They're in the home. You could love them. You see them. You give them a kiss. Give them a hug. You could extend more love to them. But once they leave the house, you can only love them to an extent. You still love them with all the same love that you did when they were in the home. But now you can't show it because they're not in the position to receive. Why? Because they left the home. And that's what this verse means. He says, Jacob, I have love. Because he stayed there in the position to receive God's love. He says, but Esau, I have hated. Why? Because he turned his back and he left the position of receiving God's love. Right? That's all that means. So don't, don't let that trip you up. God is love and he's all love. Right? If God is justice, which he is, he is all justice. If God, if God is mercy, which he is, he is all mercy. God is not 90% this and 10% this or 100% this and 0.0. No. He is everything that God is, he is 100%. It's called the attributes of God. Love, justice, patience, mercy, kindness, forgiveness, all these different things. God is 100%. Not any less. Right? And so going on now, verse 14, uh, as a uh, as Paul, again, he, again, is just plowing this away. He says, what shall we say then? He says, is there unrighteousness with God? He says, certainly not. No way. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whoever I want to have compassion on. He says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but it's of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And verse 18 says, Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and, and whom he wills, he hardens. And so Paul is saying, hey, does God's choosing to use one individual, or in this case, one nation, over another, make God unjust? He says, no way. Why? He says, because the mercy is of God. That word mercy is, is giving someone something that they don't deserve. And in this case, nobody deserves it. But yet God, for reasons known only to him, chose the nation of Israel. And so Paul saying, hey, it's not that God was unjust, right? He says, he says, no, but like the scripture says, I will have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion on. And that God chose the nation of Israel to work through for his reason and his reason alone, right? It's not that he was unfair. Now, with that same thought, I mean, there, there, there's a danger in thinking, oh man, well, we're God's chosen people. Right? We're God's chosen people. He should use us, right? We're the Jews, for the, for the for the hearer of Paul's letter, and and that's what he was addressing for those for those Jews who were thinking, man, well, we're descendants of Abraham. Why wouldn't God use us? Right? He should. He owes it to us. And for us as believers, I mean, you could translate that to, to our Christian walk. And and there's a danger in thinking that just because you know we're saved, or just because you know, hey, man, we belong to God, that God should use us, or God should give us anything. And God doesn't owe us anything. God is gonna bless because that's who God is. God desires to bless. And God always desires to bless. And that's true. The book of James says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Right? In whom there is no uh, distinction. Meaning, hey man, every good and perfect good gift comes from God. Why? Because God is a God who loves and God is a, a God who desires to bless. And so, we see again that even for the believer in Christ, man, we're, we're treading dangerous ground when we think, well... I mean, God owes, God owes it to me, right? I've been saved for this long. I went to Bible college. I did all this. I read all these books. And man, why wouldn't God use me to teach? Or why wouldn't God use me to minister to somebody? Why wouldn't God use me to lead a class or whatever? Hey, man, God doesn't have to use anybody. God doesn't have to use me. He could send some angels right now from heaven and they do a million times better than, than I am right now. But yet he chooses to use us. 
for reasons completely known only to him. And so he says, God's mercy isn't shown to us because of what we want to do for God or what we've done. It's just but simply because he's God and he's merciful. And then verse 19 says, will you, will you say to me, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for, for dishonor? And so Paul's saying, so then to the person who says, hey, well, God chose us, right? And, and, and God chose us knowing that we're going to reject him. Then it's not my fault. Why did he choose me in the first place? And, and, and that's what Paul's addressing now for the person who would think that way. Well, if God chose me, he knew I was going to reject him, then it's not my fault. He knew. Why did he choose me in the first place? Right? He said, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? And, 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 and Paul's answer to that, he says, he says, hey man, who are you to even reply against God? Who are you to even you know, question God that way? Right? He says, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Right? For us who are, who are like in, or you guys who are in craft, who do crafts or, or in a trade, man, imagine yourself, you're making, let's say, a quilt. You're making a quill or you're making some kind of craft and halfway through you're making it, the craft speaks to you and says, hey, why are you making me like this? Why don't you make me this color? Why don't you make me this color? And you, of course, imagine this, you think, shut up, I know what I'm doing with you. I have a plan for you. I'm going to paint you this color. I'm going to sew this on here. I'm going to sell you for this much. It's going to go to this person who's in need. Whatever. You have a plan for this thing already, right? And Paul would say, hey, man, he says, why are we even questioning God? Will the thing formed question the person making it, why have you made me like this? Right? It's a ridiculous thing. It's a, it's a funny thought to kind of ponder. But, but Paul's saying, when we question God in that way, he says, that's what we're doing. God created us and we're asking and we're questioning, well, God, why'd you make me this way? Or God, why, why, why are your plans like this and not like that? And then he uses the illustration of a potter, that, which was very uh, popular. Because back then, I mean, couldn't go to, uh, to Hobby Lobby and get you know, some nice uh, coffee mugs or whatever. You know, or even go to Walmart and get some uh, garbage cans or whatever. Right? Everything was made out of clay. And so Paul now uses the, the, the illustration of a potter. And he says, uh, For indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why why you made me like this? He says, Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And so typically in every, in every home there at that time in the first century, you would go into a home and you would find all kinds of pottery. Right, and every every pot uh, was uh, for a different purpose. There were those, there were these were that were called vessels of honor or, or pottery for honor and pottery for dishonor. The pottery for honor is what you would use to drink out of, to uh, eat off of, to store water, whatever. And the ones for dishonor uh, are the ones that you would use to pretty much do your business in and then go chuck it in the in the in the in the in the, in the dump or something, you know. Uh, to defecate it, to use the restroom. Pretty much, you would use it as a as a toilet. And so Paul is saying, "Look, man," he says, "God," he says, "He says, do not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make some vessels for honor and some for dishonor, right?" And, and Paul's not saying that that God creates individuals this way. He's not saying that God created men and women, some for honor, some for dishonor, right? Some for he heaven, some for hell. But he's using this as an illustration, saying, "Look." The potter takes a lump of clay and he chooses whatever he wants to do with it. Some he makes awesome uh, drinking cups out of it, coffee mugs, and others he makes them for waste. 
He says, but it's not up to them. It's up to the potter, right? And so Paul's point is, look, man, God does whatever he wants. God is sovereign. Now, the sovereignty of God, meaning that God knows everything about us. He knows our whole lives, beginning, middle, end. He sees our life as if it already happened, right? We live from moments, moments and moments and moments. I don't know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now, right? I can guess, but I don't know for sure. God sees our life as a whole. That's called the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God would be a scary thing if I didn't know that God is love. Right? If I didn't know that God is love, if I didn't know that God is mercy, if I didn't know that God is just, then God's sovereignty would be a terrifying thing to me. Because every single moment I think, man, what's God going to do in my life? What did he create me for? Am I going to die? Am I going to suffer? Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? But knowing that God is love, and knowing that he's sovereign over my life causes me to rest in the sovereignty of God because I know that God is just. Because I know that God is mercy. Because I know how Paul said in Romans 8, 28, that he causes all things to work together for our good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Right? So somebody might think of the sovereignty of God as a kind of like a militant thing. Like, no way, man. I don't want this God kind of you know, knowing my life and you know, all these things. But, but when you when you think about it that way, you're like, hey, God is love, man. And he's got your life in your hand and in, in his, his hands. It causes us to rest. It causes us to rest no matter what we're going through because you know, you know what? God is sovereign and God is love. And in his sovereignty and in his love, he's allowing this to happen. And so he says now, speaking hypothetically in verse 22, he says, What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering and much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Says, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. He says, which he had prepared beforehand for the glory. He says, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Right? So again, hypothetically speaking, Paul is saying, well, what if God you know, was wanting to show his wrath and, and his power? Right? And so he endured with these, with these who were going to reject him. So they... So and the whole world could see God's patience, God's mercy, God's uh, long suffering, right? And, and what if God, you know, for His glory, He chose those vessels uh, of, of dishonor for His glory, right? So that everyone could see and, and marvel. And then He's pointing it out to the Jews, to the Gentiles. He says, "Even us, He says, for called, who are called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." And now His focus is, man, back on the Gentiles, I meaning the rest of the people who are going to be saved besides the Jewish nation. And then He quotes. He quotes there, he says, from Hosea, he says, I will call them, he says, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. Speaking about us. That God said it from me before. He says, look, those who are, quote, unquote, not my people, right, not the nation of Israel, he says, I'm going to call them my people. He says, and her beloved who was not beloved. That's us. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that they shall be called sons of the living God or daughters. Include yourself there. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, saying, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because of the work, because, of, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Talking about the seven-year tribulation period, saying, Look, God's not done with the nation of Israel. Right? They have rejected, but God still has a remnant who are going to be saved. Of specifically talking about of the nation of Israel through the tribulation period. Right? He's not done with them. And he quotes Isaiah again in verse 29. He says, Unless the Lord of, uh, of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we, have, we would have been made like Gomorrah. In verse 30, What shall we say then? The Gentiles 
who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Says, but Israel, who were pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they, had, they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And so Paul is saying, look, he says, he says what can I say? He says, look, there's a, we're in a big church and there's Jews and Gentiles. And what can I say about the Gentiles being saved? He says, the Gentiles attained righteousness through their faith. And they weren't even pursuing it. They weren't trying to keep the law. They weren't trying to be holy. But just because they believed in Jesus, they were made righteous. That's awesome. And he says, and the Jews, those religious Jews, they were trying to attain righteousness not by faith, but by keeping the law. And they missed it. And so Paul is kind of like a, like a, uh, this, it's funny, I guess I could say for lack of better words, he says, man, it's funny that, that they weren't even trying. And just by faith, man, look, they, they're righteous. And these guys who are trying hard to keep the law and to be made righteous by the law, he says, God's saying, man, that, that amounts to nothing because you have no faith in Christ. Right? He says, but instead they stumbled. They stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written. As he quotes Isaiah 8.14, says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Speaking about Christ. Okay? There was a story. Um, there was a story. Well, I'm not going to go into the story, but, but he, he's talking about, again, the nation of Israel. He says, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Right? And that rock is Christ. And Paul, and Paul saying, look, God laid this rock there in the middle of us, right? This rock that would, so big that we would all see it and say, oh, wow. He says, I'm going to trust in this rock, which is Christ. But being that this rock is so huge, he says, there were some that actually even stumbled upon it. And it's kind of a, a funny imagery because this boulder is so huge. Right? You can't, you trip over little things, little rock, little pebble, little whatever. So you don't trip over a whole boulder. But Paul says, look, God set this huge boulder that is Christ in the midst of us so that we would be able to see him and look to, and look to God and say, oh man, thank you God, right? We're saved because of Christ, because of what you did for us. He says, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. But to, so some, to those that believe, righteousness, forgiveness. But to those who, who rejected him, hey, they stumbled it. They stumbled by, by it. Why? Because they were offended by it. They were offended by Christ. But for those of us, and one right here, it says, whoever believes on him will not be put in I love that because there's so many things in our life, even as Christians, or things, even if you're not a Christian and you want to come to the Lord, you always think of, but what about this, this, that, and the other? You think about different shameful things in your, in your life that you don't want God to know, which he knows already, or things, shameful things in your life that you think, you know, God wouldn't accept or God would reject you because of these things, shameful things. And Paul would say, hey man, whoever believes on Christ, whoever believes on Jesus, will not be put to shame. Meaning, all those things that bring you shame, Christ doesn't look at those things. You put your faith in Him, and man, it's all forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. If the former things have passed away, and all is made new. Shame? And we leave it at the cross. And we don't pick it up again, because God doesn't. He leaves it there. Right on Wednesday, we're, we're as we're covering a uh, uh, book of Leviticus. Right, this the scripture that that, that that I quoted in Micah. That Micah says that God takes our sins and He casts them into the depths of the ocean. And man, that that's a scripture I, I meditate on constantly. That God takes our sins and He casts them into the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. And I mentioned how Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India, said about that verse. He says, God. 
God takes our sins, He casts them into the deepest, deepest parts of the ocean, and He puts a sign that says, no fishing. And that's God, man. He doesn't bring those things up again. If God has forgiven you of this, this, that, and the other, hey, man, He's not like us where we bring it up. Well, yeah, well, remember this. That's not God, right? He doesn't do that, right? Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for